At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit GospelCC.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. I love watching movies. Um, I don't get to watch as many movies as I used to um, because I have adulting to do, um, but I still love watching movies. Um, the way that my brain works, um, if, if my brain is switched on, I'm an auditory learner and I can pretty much memorize most of what I hear. Uh, and so there are actually several films rattling around in this uh, crazy brain of mine. You may be proud to know that your pastor has memorized all of Tombstone, because yes, I am your, your Huckleberry, but you may be ashamed to know that your pastor has also memorized all of Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura 1 and 2. Now, here's the thing with most great movies. Most great movies have a central theme. There's this line that kind of draws all of the film together, and that great theme is revenge. I mean, think about the film Gangs of New York. Leonardo DiCaprio spends most of the movie ingratiating himself with the other lead character because that guy has killed his father, and so what he's trying to do is to get next to this guy so that he can kill him. All of the great films, like Braveheart, I mean, they, they killed this guy's dad, then they kill his wife, and so he leads the army to go kill them. Movies like Godfather, The Count of Monte Cristo, Gladiator, Taken, they're all about revenge. Again, even the greatest film previously named Tombstone, they kill this guy's brother and he spends the middle whole half of the movie just riding around killing those guys. It, it's about revenge. It's, it's about getting them, getting them back. You see, revenge and retaliation are a basic human instinct. It, it just comes naturally to us. So if you push me, I will push you back. If you punch me, I will punch you back. If you steal something from me, I will steal something uh, from you. It is a basic human response for us to think about revenge and retaliation. I mean, if, if you don't believe me that it's a basic human response, just put two kids, to put your two kids in a room with toys. The basic human response, one kid will eventually want to play with the toy and the kid will want that toy and so he comes up or she comes up and snatches the toy from the one kid and then the other kid snatches it back and then one kid punches the other one and the other kid punches back and then it's like a cage match over a hatchimal. So, so it is, it is a, a basic human instinct for us to seek revenge and to seek retaliation and the truth is most of us don't grow out of it. Cut me off in traffic, and I'll cut you off. I'll get around, I'll speed up, I'll fly past you, I'll get over in front of you and slam on my brakes. That's just me. Now, if you make me look stupid in front of the boss, I'll do the same thing to you. If your parents make you mad for some reason, you get them back by not letting them see their grandkids. We do this in our marriages. We say, oh, you're not going to be, um, you're going to be emotionally distant from me. Well, I'm going to be physically distant from you. It's, it's all about retaliation and revenge. And the reason that I say all of this is this. Revenge and retaliation just come naturally to us. This is why it's so hard for us to believe in the reality of God's grace. It's what makes grace so hard for us to get. It, it's, it's hard to believe. We, we call it amazing grace because it's, it can be unbelievable at times. We're, we're often just waiting around for God to get us back for the things that we've done. You see, God gives us great gifts and love and mercy, and he gives us all of this stuff. And, and he says, here, I love you. Live your life this way. And we say to him, no, I, I want to live my life my way and do what I want to do. 
And so we totally ignore him and totally reject him. And so rightfully so, he should seek his revenge. He should seek his vengeance on us, but he doesn't. In great grace and love and mercy, he comes after us and loves us and pours out his blessings upon us again and again and again. Just look at the cross. This is God's grace standing in stark contradiction with our tendency of revenge and retaliation. Just listen to this, what what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What? To turn the other cheek? Are you kidding me? If somebody slaps you, you sucker punch them when they're not looking. You don't turn the other cheek. But, but Jesus here says, no, you... You turn the other cheek, and if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I mean, this, this concept or idea is so foreign to us. It's so foreign to us what Jesus is, is saying here in the text. I mean, hasn't Jesus ever heard of Sean Connery? You see, Sean Connery says to Kevin Costner in the great film, The Untouchables. Anybody seen The Untouchables? Okay. Sean Connery says to Kevin Costner in the great film, The Untouchables, you want to get Al Capone? Here is how you get Al Capone. If he pulls a knife, you pull a gun. If he sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Right? And when he says that line, there's the, that thing that, like, inside of us that goes, yeah! And then in stark contrast... Jesus says, turn the other cheek. In stark contrast, Jesus offers grace. In stark contrast, Jesus offers love and says, I won't seek my vengeance. I won't retaliate. I will pour out my love and my grace. And he he does so on the cross. You've got to know God is full of mercy and grace. He is full of mercy because he does not give us what we deserve He is full of grace because he then gives us what we don't deserve, sonship, acceptance into the family of God, loves and gifts. Friends, this is amazing grace. If you're taking notes, you may be marked by sin, but it does not have to define you because of the power of God's grace. We're all marked by sin. We're marked by the sin that we've walked in, the things that we have done. Not only that, we're marked by the things that have been done to us. We're marked by sin, but we do not have to be defined by it because of God's great mercy and God's great grace. The good news today, friends, is that God is not done with you. Oftentimes when we deny God, when we walk away from him, when we leave him, when we step away from the church, when we step away from the things of God, when we err into sin, we think that's it. It's over. I'm done. But friends, God is not done with you. In the passage today, here is Jesus' closest friend, the leader of the disciples, He's not challenged by a temple guard or a giant Roman soldier. He's challenged by a servant girl, and he denies Christ. And so the question is, what should Jesus do in response? We expect him to get revenge. If if Peter denies Jesus, then Jesus should deny Peter. That's it, right? Wrong. Jesus is not done with Peter. Though he denies and denies and denies, Jesus meets him on the beach and asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter is reinstated. The the Holy Spirit comes and Peter, the one who denied, preaches this sermon, this amazing sermon. 3,000 people get saved in a day. He leads the church planting movement all throughout Jerusalem. People are saved, their lives are changed, and he goes on to write books of the Bible. God was not done with Peter, and God is not done with you. So that's our text. Here's the goal today. May our hearts be filled with joy as we reflect on the mercy and grace of God. 
I wonder if you've been in the church so long that these words have just grown callous to you. I wonder if you've been around church so long that, that when, when I say things like, I, I want our hearts to be filled with joy because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, that those are hollow, empty, churchy terms that, that don't really resonate with you anymore. Friends, allow this text today to uncover the beauty and the glory of God's grace and mercy. See it afresh this morning. See it with new eyes. See this Jesus who, while he is being beat and spit upon in his time of greatest need, Peter denies him, yet God pours out his grace and his mercy on Peter and forgives him. See this mercy afresh this morning. Just listen to the kind of grace I'm talking about from Romans 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is an awesome verse. That should get us fired up this morning, church. Sin is exposed and shown to us through the Bible. As the Bible says, this is the way that you should live. We don't live that way. That, that's, that's what the beginning of this means. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. The more we read the Bible, the more we see what we're supposed to be doing, we actually realize that we're not doing that. But where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. God continues to pour out his love and his mercy and his grace. And we say, God, I messed up. And he goes, I love you. God, I fell down. He goes, get back up. I'll love you. So the banner over Christians says loved by God. The banner over Christians says precious child. The banner over Christians says covered by grace. The banner over Christians says forgiven and free. And this is the amazing grace that we are speaking about this morning. If you would turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14 and go ahead and get your eyes on the verses. What we have in this section is another one of Mark's famous sandwiches. We have seen these time and time again where Mark introduces an idea. He goes away from that idea and talks about something different and then returns to that same idea to emphasize the point. So what we're going to see in our text today, if you are uh, speaking to my type A people, here's the outline. Verses 53 through 54, Peter's going to follow at a distance. He, he was with Jesus in the garden, pulling out swords ready to fight to the death. But at the end of the text, last week we saw that everybody left Jesus. Even the courageous sword-wielding Peter left. And now we find him, he's following Jesus, but, but is he close? He's at a distance. In verses 55 through 65, Jesus will be at a hearing before the Sanhedrin. Then, like I said, we return to the idea in verses 66 through 72, where Peter denies Jesus three times. Let's jump into our text. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Now, at this time, Caiaphas uh, is the high priest. Uh, the, head, the, the high priest or the chief priest, that's, that's the head honcho. That's the guy who calls all the shots. He's in charge of the temple and everything that goes on in it. But it's not just the high priest. There's a list of other fellows. The chief priests and the elders and the scribes all came together. So um, we have talked at length about the Sanhedrin uh, in other sermons, so I won't get into it. But the Sanhedrin is essentially the highest ruling council in Jerusalem. Okay? Jesus is before the Sanhedrin at Caiaphas' house. We see that Peter is not close to Jesus, but he's following at a distance. Just hours ago, Peter was ready to die. He, he declared, if, if everyone leaves you, I will stay and fight with you to the death. Yet they all leave and desert him. And so now Peter, this man of great contradictions, is following Jesus at a distance. Now, before we condemn him as a coward, we do have to acknowledge that 
he is actually following Jesus. I mean, where's the rest of the guys? Peter does have some uh, amount of courage to be able to follow Jesus, but he's following, it's, again, he's this man of contradictions because he's not following closely, identifying himself with Christ. He's following at a distance. He goes all the way into the courtyard, which is brave, but where does he sit? With the guards, the, the guys who arrested Jesus and will soon spit on him and beat him. He is this man of, of contradictions. So there they are. In this moment, as Peter follows at a distance and does not identify himself with Christ, Peter has decided that the cost of discipleship is too high to pay. Actually following Jesus, the cost of discipleship, Peter decides it's too much, it's too costly. If you're taking notes, discipleship is very costly. It will take you on uncomfortable journeys and lead you to difficult destinations. This is the cost of following Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross Again, for, for us, for us Westerners, for us who have been in and around the church, when we think of cross, we think of, you know, the church building, and, and maybe there's one on top, and, you know, maybe there's one on the stage. When we think of the cross, that's what we think. But when Jesus said, take up your cross, he meant take up your instrument of torture. That's what the cross is. The cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus is incredibly high. You may lose your job. You may be mocked and laughed at. People may say that, that you're out of date, that you're not accepting, that you're closed-minded. You, you may be called all sorts of names. And here, Peter decides that it's not worth the cost. So there they are. The scene is set. Imagine um, a, a house where there would be a large courtyard in the middle, and then there are kind of rooms surrounding the courtyard. And so the, the guards and several other people and Peter are kind of waiting out in the courtyard Jesus has been taken inside the house in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, uh, again, was the highest ruling council. It would have been made up of 71 members, and they're all gathered there, and there stands Jesus. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we have heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands in three days, and I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. It, it's important for us to note that everything that's happening with Jesus right now is highly illegal. You are not supposed to have trials like this at night. Trials like this were supposed to be conducted, not supposed to be conducted during a festival. We know that this is Passover. In addition, the charge of blasphemy could not be issued unless the defendant cursed God's name, and then they were supposed to stone him, not crucify him. And there's actually a longer list that I didn't include in here of other violations that these guys are, are, are making. I mean, this is, this is crazy what these guys are doing. So we have all these people here who are, who are bearing false witness, but the problem is they can't get their story straight. You know, you, you can imagine, I mean, if they, if they paid off Judas, they probably paid these guys off. You know, okay. You're going to come in, you say this, you say this. But apparently they just, they didn't get together on it. And so they're like, he said this, I think. No, he said that. Are you sure? No, he said, they, they just, they can't get it together. And it's like the more they talk, the more the case unravels. And so things are, are not really going well. Now, the charge is that Jesus said he would destroy the temple. Again, the temple is a big deal. It's their center of worship. It, it's where, you know, God's spirit lives there. So it's kind of a big deal for them. And so the charge is that Jesus said he would destroy it and build another one. Now, we know in John chapter 2 that Jesus does say this. He says that destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But then it's clear that Jesus is talking about the temple uh, of his body. And in addition, when Jesus comes back from the dead, the temple will be obsolete. So Jesus is actually saying way more than what they're charging him of saying. <laughs> Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the center of worship, right? He, he's saying, destroy the temple and I'll build it back up, meaning the temple of his body, meaning the temple is where God meets his people. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the conduit to where God can meet his people to where God can come near. 
Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the new temple. So he's actually saying way more than they think he's saying. That's the irony of the whole thing. But the problem is, the text says, even about this, they could not agree. So a group of well-educated and very powerful men are trying to discredit Jesus, but they simply can't do it. And generation after generation after generation, people have been seeking to discredit Jesus, and they still can't do it. The church is still here, vibrant and strong, and the gospel message is still going out all over the world. So things aren't going well. You can understand the Sanhedrin is probably very frustrated. They've paid these witnesses, most likely. They still can't get their story together. I mean, they've already gone through the trouble of arresting him in the middle of the night, gathering the entire Sanhedrin. They're just trying to get things going here, but it's not going well for them. Nobody's agreeing. So when the high priest stands up in the midst at verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? You can imagine his fists are clenched, his jaw is tight like this, and he's very, I mean, you can just imagine how frustrated this guy is. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it these men are testifying against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Now, Jesus is being strategically silent. Does Jesus have to say anything at this point? Well, no, he doesn't have to say anything. Why? Because they're blowing up their own case. All he has to do is just stand there. I mean, they're they're blowing the thing up themselves, so he doesn't have to. Secondly, anything that Jesus would have said would just be twisted around and, and used against him. And lastly, the reason that Jesus is silent is because he's fulfilling Scripture. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. Here stands Jesus fulfilling Scripture that was written about him some 700 years before as he stands silent. The high priest has had enough. Look at verse 61 again, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, where he's charging him, I think, with this angry uh, intent here, I think it's, it's almost sarcasm. I mean, again, imagine Jesus has been in the garden all night long, so much so that Luke records he was in such anguish that he sweat blood. Uh, he's been arrested, probably, you know, knocked around a bit. So after a sleepless night in the garden, after sweating blood, after getting arrested, getting knocked around, he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, right, seemingly in this place of having no power, the Sanhedrin believing they have all the power. And so you can almost imagine the high priest saying, are you the Christ? I mean, really? Can, can you guys, I mean... They're all with their nice robes, you know, the big hats and all the stuff and the things. And there is this poor Galilean peasant, uh, you know, not looking his best. Are you, this guy, this guy's the Christ, this guy's the Messiah, this guy's the one who's going to, you know, come and restore Jerusalem and Israel back to its rightful place in the world. Are you kidding me? This guy? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, what Jesus says next is an atomic bomb, and it goes off in the middle of this room. It is powerful, it is concise, it is sharp, it is loaded with scriptural references, content, and context. When Jesus says this, it is a cutting knife straight through the middle of that room. Just look at what Jesus says. It's, it's amazing. And Jesus said, I am. I mean, right there, he could have just went, mic drop. I'm out. I am, and you will see the Son of Man. It, just, it, keep, it keeps building on top of itself. Just look at it. I am, and you will see the Son of Man, where? Seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds. Jesus begins this way. He begins by saying, I am. So he's clearly answering in the affirmative. He's clearly saying, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. Amazing. He begins by answering in the affirmative, but he's not only answering in the affirmative, he's also saying something else. He's also ascribing to himself that special name that is only to be given to Yahweh God. 
as Moses stood there in front of the bush, and the, you know, the bush is on fire, and it, you know, it's talking to him, which is a bit strange, and he's like, I got to go back to Pharaoh and talk to him, and I got to tell him, you know, should I say the burning bush sent me? Like, that would be awkward, and the bush says, no, say, I am sent you. Again, this is that name, Ego Emi. This is the name that is ascribed to Yahweh God, and Jesus just ascribed it to himself. He begins by saying, I am, and you will see the Son of Man. Now, this is Jesus' favorite designation for himself, and it comes from Daniel chapter 7, where it is said that the Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days. The, the Son of Man comes in before the Ancient of Days, and given to the Son of Man is all power and all authority. Amazing. Amazing that, that Jesus uses this term to describe himself from Daniel chapter 7. And in addition, Jesus says that he will be seated at the right hand of power. He is referring to the psalm uh, written by David, Psalm 110 verse 1, where David writes, uh, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I mean, just this thing is packed with spiritual, scriptural significance. Jesus is on trial he is put in front of the Sanhedrin, and he's asked to say who and what he is. And Jesus boldly, clearly, with great articulation, says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds and seated at the right hand of power. That is incredible. Verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, and he covered his, and covered his face to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Here's what is incredible. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Jesus has all the power and authority. So whatever he declares we are, that's what we are. When Jesus stands before that council and says to them, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds and seated at the right hand of power, he is declaring his authority. So for those of us who have denied Christ, those of us who have walked away from Christ and we feel that we need to be like Peter and stay off at a distance, we need to realize who Jesus has said that we are. Because it is only the one with the power and the authority who can make these type of declarations. And so Jesus has all the power and all the authority, so whatever Jesus says that we are, that's what we are. You see, I'm actually for uh, name it and claim it theology. Maybe you didn't know that about me. I just believe that as long as Jesus is the one naming it and claiming it, it's true. <laughs> there's, there's a silly theology that says that, that we can stand in the place and stand in that power and stand in that authority and whatever we name and claim, and it, it, it's going to be. You know, we can name and claim, I'm going to have a full bank account, I'm going to get a Rolls Royce, I'm going to get a bigger house, and as long as you name it and claim it and believe it, it'll come true, and that's hogwash. But because Jesus says, I have all the power, I have all the authority, whatever Jesus names and claims, that's what it is. And so when Jesus says, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are accepted, you are forgiven, you are free, you are clean, you are cleansed. When Jesus says it, it's true. Because he has all the power and he has all the authority. That's what's, that's, that's what's so crazy about this situation. The, the entire council, they look like the ones with all the power and the authority. There they are, their fancy robes, sitting in their chairs, you know, looking all, you know, pious and smug. And there's this poor Galilean peasant who's been roughed up by the guards and, and looks all disheveled. It looks like they're the ones with all the power and the authority and whatever they say goes, but that's exactly the opposite. Verse 65, and some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. The other Gospels inform us that when they say prophesy, they're, they're asking him to prophesy who will punch him next. And they spit on him. I mean, how, how shameful is that to be spat upon? But this is what happens to Christ. And even as they are beating him and spitting on him, he's fulfilling Scripture. 
even as they're saying to him, prophesy, prophesy, they're making fun of his ability to prophesy when every single one of his prophecies has come true. Isaiah 60, or 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Again, written about Christ some 700 years before this scene. The question is, at this point, will Peter burst through the courtyard and come to Jesus' defense? Will Peter burst in and say, what about the miracles? He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. Why do you persecute this man who has done only good things for God's people? No. As they beat him, as they spit on him, Peter is still at a distance. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Again, in this culture, again, not disparaging women, in this culture, you couldn't get any lower than this. She was a servant and she was a girl. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, She looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Look at verse 68. But he denied it. That was the moment. That was the time. If he was ever going to turn this thing around, if he was ever going to jump out there and be bold, at least he could start at at the lowest common denominator. Yes, I I know him. But, But he denied it. Listen to what he says. I neither know nor understand what you mean. What are you talking about, girl? Get out of here. I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway. He's in the courtyard. He's in the... Denies Christ, and then what happens? He retreats even further away. More and more distance is put between him and Christ, but he denied it. I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Now, here's what's happening here. Um, if, If you took a redneck like me, Uh, and put me in New York, okay, I would stick out, right? Walking around in cowboy boots, you know, doing redneck stuff. You would be able to identify you don't belong. In the same way, these guys are from Galilee. They're from the mountains. These guys dress a little bit different. They have an accent. They talk a little bit different. And so it's clear that this guy's a Galilean. They point, you're you're a Galilean. And Jesus came from up there, and all, all you guys are together. That's what's happening here in the text. But he denied it. Certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. Verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He invokes a a curse. So um, he's not like using bad language here. He's saying, may my house be burnt down if I know this man. And then... He invokes a curse, and then he, he swears. And, and we're assuming that he is appealing to something bigger than himself when he swears, so he's probably swearing to God. He's, he's saying things like, may my house be burnt down, may my family die if I know this man. I, I swear to God I don't know him. He has distanced himself so much from Jesus, he doesn't even say his name. Look at what Peter says. I do not know who this man of whom you speak doesn't even use his name. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Look at the state of Peter. And he broke down and wept. Now, here's what is astonishing about this account. What do you think about this? Where do we get the source material for this? Where does Mark get this information? Mark gets this information because he sat down with Peter 
and Peter detailed the events, and Mark wrote it down. Therefore, we have the gospel of Mark. You can imagine Peter sitting there with Mark, and he's explaining, I was, I was there, I was there in the courtyard, and this girl came up. She asked me if I knew him, and I denied him, and I denied him again, and it, it crushed me. It crushed me, and, and I, just, I didn't know what else to do, so I just wept because I denied my master. I denied my savior. I mean, you, you can just imagine Peter telling this story to Mark and, and Mark writing it down. I mean, why, why didn't he exclude this part? I mean, it, it makes him look really bad. He's got to go on to lead this movement, to lead the church, to be a pastor, and to write books of the Bible. I mean, if, if this information about Peter gets out there, no one will believe him. No, he'll always be known as the guy who denied Jesus. But just like King David, who preserved the record of his sin, Peter wanted to preserve this, to put on display the beauty and the glory of God's grace. The fact that God didn't get vengeance on Peter. God didn't come after Peter to smite him. To, you know, to, Jesus fought so that Peter would not be turned over to Satan. Jesus could have said, oh, you denied me? All right, that's it. Satan, you can have him. But, but he doesn't do that. So Peter wants to preserve this record of his sin to show how gracious God is, to show how loving God is. If you're taking notes, the church is a place where we can be honest about our sin. That's what the church is, but, but sadly, it's the opposite. The, what most of us think is churches where you come to lie about your sin. <laughs> How are you doing? Fine. Right? How are you? Fine. How are things going? Perfect. You know, be, just been in the word. You know me. The church is where we come to be honest about our sin. The, the, the Bible is this preservation of the sins of great men, Right? I mean, because great men are still just men. And so the church should be the place where we come and we're honest and open about sin that we've walked in, where we've been, what we've done, because it puts on display the grace of God. Peter wants this record in the gospel because it is not the end of his story. Peter says, Mark, you write that down because that's not where my story ended. And so if you're here this morning and you are feeling crushed with guilt, you, you have walked in sin. You know that just like Peter, you are at a distance. If that's you, God's not done with you. And your story is not over. Peter knew that his story continued on. You see, days have gone by since Jesus' death, and Peter returns to what he knows. Peter goes fishing. That's what he knows. He goes out there and... I've experienced this, doesn't catch anything. A guy on the beach says, hey, put the net on the other side. They didn't have anything better to do. They threw the net on the other side and haul in this amazing catch, and all of a sudden, this light bulb comes on for Peter. He jumps into the water and starts swimming like crazy. He gets to the beach, and there is Christ, and he has cooked breakfast. Let's jump into that section in John chapter 21. Listen to, listen to what happens. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Again, he begins by calling him Simon. He calls him Simon. Jesus had already changed his name. But he calls him Simon here. He's signaling to him, hey, I named you Peter. I named you the rock, but, but you're not acting that way. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him, a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The last time that Peter was cold and was by a fire was in the courtyard of the high priest. 
And so on that beach, Peter is cold again, and Jesus builds a fire. Peter had denied Jesus three times, and so Jesus three times asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus is recreating this entire scene for Peter to show him his grace, to pour out his grace upon him, to show him and reinstate him and bring him back into the family of God. Again, because whatever Jesus says that we are, that's what we are. And so Jesus says, you are loved, you are cherished, you are my son, I'm bringing you back in, I love you. And all of this came out for Peter. If you're taking notes, if you boil Christianity down to one question, it's this, do you love Jesus? That's what he asks Peter, do you love me, do you love me? God was not done with Peter. Listen, church, if you have blown it, Jesus can and will forgive you. What is so amazing about this is it's not that Jesus forgives him, that's amazing, but he gives him a job to do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. He doesn't just like bring him back in and say, all right, I'm letting you in, but you got to sit over there. I'm letting you in, but go to the back. I'm letting you in, but I'm still kind of grumpy about it. You see, that's, that's how I often view God when, when I fail, when I fall, when I mess up. It's like God says, all right, Kirk, you can come back in, but I'm going to be mad about it. I'm going to make some, you know, passive-aggressive comments to let you know I'm still grumpy with you. <laughs> that's not how it is. That's not how it is. Fully forgiven, fully free, covered by grace. Whatever Jesus says that I am, that's what I am. So, again, last couple notes and I'm out of your hair. If you're following at a distance, come near because you are what Jesus declares you are. That's it. Jesus said Peter was forgiven and free and loved and a son, and that's what he was. That's it. Jesus said it. It's over. So no matter what I think about myself, no matter what I feel about myself, I am what Jesus says that I am, forgiven and free. Last note, again, just to recap, you may be marked by sin, but it does not have to define you because of the power of God's grace. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're just thinking, it, it just sounds too good to be true. I mean, Jesus just says, I, I forgive you, and that's it? That's all there is? It sounds too good to be true. Well, friends, You've got to look back at the text and see what Jesus endures so that you can be forgiven. It's not as if Jesus took your sin lightly. It's not as if your sin is not a big deal, because it is. It's such a big deal that Jesus went to the cross. It's such a big deal that they beat him. It's such a big deal that they drove nails through his hands and his feet. It's such a big deal that they put a crown of thorns on his head. It's such a big deal that he was stabbed in the heart with a spear. It's such a big deal that they wrapped him in clothes and put him in the grave and he stayed there dead. It's such a big deal that he did all of that. It's such a big deal that he was brought back to life and ascended into heaven. He did all of that so that he could declare over his church and over his people forgiven and free. And so believe on that grace this morning. Believe on that grace this morning. Let that grace come in and wash over you and view yourself through the lens that Jesus sees you forgiven, free, a son, a daughter, an heir. Because whatever Jesus says we are, that's what we are because Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, seated at the right hand of power. Jesus is in authority, so whatever he says we are, that's what we are, forgiven and free. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your declaration over your people. We thank you that you have declared us forgiven and free as Christians. I pray for those this morning who um, do not know you. I pray for those who are far away from you, like Peter. I pray for those who have distanced themselves from you intentionally. I pray that they would realize that there is grace at the foot of the cross. 
I pray that they would realize that they can come and be loved and accepted by you, that it doesn't matter what's in their past, it doesn't matter what they've done, what they've said, where they've been, who they've been with, that your grace is sufficient and that your power is made perfect in our weakness. So, Lord, would you minister to us this morning? Would you help those of us who have callous hearts that have grown callous over your grace? Would you, would you shock us afresh this morning? Open our eyes, reopen our eyes to see the beauty of your grace, your grace so powerful, powerful enough to forgive Peter who denied you three times. Not only did you forgive him, but you reinstated him. You gave him a job. You welcomed him into the kingdom. And so, Lord... Open our eyes this morning. Let our hearts be filled with joy over the beauty and the power of your grace. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.